Hey, it's Mark. We're taping this episode to coincide with World Rare Disease Day. Held the last day of February each year, WRDD is an annual observance to raise awareness for the 400 million patients living with a rare disease globally. And we're shining a real little spotlight on that observance with our podcast this week. Despite the fact that the bubble burst for biotech stocks in 2021, not to mention the global pandemic, rare disease firms were able to raise significant amounts of capital. Overall, investors poured almost $23 billion into rare disease therapeutics development last year, a 28% increase over 2020. That's according to an annual report called The Next Report, published this week by the group Global Genes. While legislation like the landmark 1983 Orphan Drug Act was the fuel behind what's become a prolific number of annual orphan drug approvals, 26 last year to be exact, one could argue that patients have been the spark plug. The robust funding market and greater attention around rare diseases have really been buoyed by patients. These days, they're doing a lot of things to focus pharma's attention on the space. They're driving deeper into data collection to create registries and databases. They're moving upstream in the drug development process and into company creation, and they're directing development of much-needed therapies, with many examples now of patient-led drug development. As we know, only a small percent of rare diseases have treatments, and largely thanks to patients, that's changing. But there are threats to this patient revolution. This week on the podcast, the perils and pitfalls as patients upend the rare disease paradigm. My guest this week is Craig Martin, CEO of Global Genes. We'll delve into Global Genes' 70-page report and get Craig's take on everything from research and data to development and funding for rare disease therapies. Craig, thanks for joining me today. How are you? Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Let's just start on the research end of things. Um, you know, we hear the stat a lot that there are 7,000 rare diseases, uh, but the number has remained largely unchanged despite the also common narrative that scientists identify about 250 new rare genetic diseases each year, all of which begs the question, why has that stat remained largely unchanged? I think it's been difficult for organizations that represent the entire community to uh, be able to step back in information not just in the U.S., but globally, uh, to really define that number. And I, we, we feature in the next report some of the work that, that RareX has done, which is designed to do just that, to, to really give us a better number. And their estimate point to the number of rare diseases actually being north of 10,000 uh, now. And that's reflective of even in some previously thought of as larger disease areas, we're finding segments of, of populations that may have a specific mutation that would classify as a rare disease. Uh, and so that's adding to the numbers as well, uh, along with just the advancement of science and our understanding of disease and our ability, therefore, to determine new and distinct diseases. Mm-hmm. And, and RareX being one of the federated data systems that's kind of connecting disparate databases and allowing the data owners to share their data through a common interface. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those uh, other databases like RareX a little bit later. So your uh, research suggests a much larger number, as, as you put it, over 10,000. Are, are there a lot of rare diseases that are kind of unacknowledged today? Yeah, I, th- I think it's pretty pretty clear that there are, um, and that may be because they were identified in disparate um, health systems and and with different research institutions, and 
Therefore, those, those particular diseases may affect a very small number of patients, maybe only a handful, maybe N of one. And so it takes a while for them to become more broadly recognized beyond just that pool of patients that effect, that's affected and, and the treating or researchers that are focused on that particular condition area. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the data landscape for rare diseases. Uh, last year, as you mentioned, RareX uh, was one of these, but we saw several uh, data collection efforts built around patient-owned data, gain attention in the world of rare disease. First of all, why is it important for patients to drive deeper into collecting their data? I think one of the observations that many patient communities have come to over the past years is that the data that they have um, from their patient populations is probably the most valuable asset that they possess to drive progress in their disease. So when we talk to industry or we talk to research institutions about what is it that you need for a, a, a patient community to engage productively with you? And they say, well, we need that patient community to be organized enough so that they connect and, and work together. Uh, but we, ideally, we would have a registry or they would have a database that they could come to us with that would help us uh, to uh, really do the type of research that we need to do. Uh, and I think as communities have begun to recognize that, they've been much more active in, in data collection. Mm -hmm. And um, let's just also take a step back and, and ask why this is happening in terms of you know, why are, are patients forming these registries and databases? You know, what, what are they not finding on Facebook support groups that is driving them deeper into, you know, the, the sort of um, homegrown data collection efforts? Well, I think there are a number of uh, reasons why some patient communities have become dissatisfied with the Facebook um, as a platform, for example, uh, they don't feel comfortable sharing information in that environment because they feel like others are, are looking at it and perhaps mining it uh, for purposes not intended for them. And uh, so we, for example, launched a, our rare uh, portal this past year, which is designed to give communities a place where uh, they can gather and share and form groups around uh, particular areas of interest, including data collection, for example, uh, and what their experiences might be there, and, and do it where they know it's just their community talking to their community and, and uh, not someone else that may be poking around in their business. And so that's one hesitation that groups have about uh, driving any sort of data collection in a Facebook environment. Um, I think the other challenges and the reason why more patient-oriented data collection uh, platforms, I think, have started to take off is that many patient communities have done data collection, um, but the way in which they've collected data and the kind of data they've collected, when they get to a point of interacting with a researcher or with industry, they find out it's not the right data to really drive research, or it's not structured or characterized in the right way um, that it can be as useful as it needs to be. So I think they've really tried to become more organized in how they go about um, uh, collecting data and information. Mm -hmm. 
And some of the other ones that we saw gain greater attention last year were the Rare Disease Cures Accelerator Data and Analytics Platform Initiative, or the RDC DAT. And that's, that one's funded by the FDA, as, as, as you point out in, in the report. And then the medical genetics company Invitae, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Invitae, in September announced it would acquire the health tech company Citizen, which is building a global platform to help patients collect, organize, and share their medical records for $325 million in cash and stock. And that will enable also Invitae to combine genotypic and phenotypic data about, about patients. So a couple other of the efforts there. I wanted to just also point out that, as, or as you point out in the report, that the proliferation of these, of these platforms to gather patient-owned data, you know, obviously designed to help drive research, but there's also a concern that rather than busting silos, there's a risk that these efforts might just be erecting new ones. Uh, can you talk about that and what's being done to prevent that, you know, siloing of that data? I think one of the reasons why uh, we've seen that proliferation is that uh, of data collection efforts um, focused on patient data is that companies see value in that data. They want to mine it and extract that value and, and sell it to pharma. And philosophically, Global Genes uh, believes that uh, patients should control how their data is used and for what purposes, and they should be the principal beneficiaries of the value that's extracted from their data. And so one of the challenges is when you have uh, a number of different uh, commercial uh, entities out there uh, trying to compete for data, there is that certainly that um, uh, chance that we will create more silos. Uh, one of the reasons why we've partnered with RareX and we're making the RareX platform accessible to our 800 and some Foundation Alliance members is that RareX is a nonprofit. Uh, their philosophy is that patients own the data um, and they get to determine who uses it and for what purposes. Uh, and, and we're a believer in that too. And we also feel like we should make those resources accessible to communities that might not otherwise have a chance to do that because there's often a cost associated with it. Um, and for many organizations that cost can be prohibitive or they learn later that they've given up their rights to the data in exchange for something that seems like it's free. Uh, and then they can't liberate that data later on if uh, the company that they're working with and they, and they part ways or, or that company gets bought or something else happens. Sure, so, so Global Genes gives patient groups, no matter the size, the opportunity to liberate that data, but, but in a safe way. Uh, so it's um, protected um, going, going forward. The, that's you know, certainly the, our goal. And, and I think that's why the, the approach to data governance that RareX has matches with our philosophy. So our goal is not to be the, the data collectors or the aggregators, but rather to work with partners who share the same philosophy about how that ought to be done and how it ought to benefit the patients that we work with. Sure, sure. You know, these databases are a way for diseases that might otherwise be overlooked to get the attention of industry. So it's very important uh, that that uh, that data governments you know, isn't in, in place. 
and only a small percentage of rare diseases have approved treatments or are the subject of industry drug development efforts. Which brings me to our next topic. Uh, I wanted to touch on, on development for a moment. You know, one continuing trend that is highlighted in the report is the migration of patient organizations beyond funding early stage academic research to translational research funding and even development funding to advance treatments for the conditions on which they're focused. How is that trend different from, say, organizations like the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which you know blazed trails years ago with its venture philanthropy funding of Vertex Pharmaceuticals and eventually you know, sold uh, the rights to those drugs uh, to Vertex for uh, several billion dollars? Uh, and um, you know, how is this trend evolving? I think one of the, uh, the I mean, certainly the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation blazed a, a trail that others could uh, could follow potentially. I think some of the differences are uh, many of the organizations and individual leaders or caregivers even who get into um, drug development do so out of necessity. Uh, so the cystic fibrosis uh, population is is larger. Uh, from a rare disease perspective than, than some of these other uh, condition areas. And um, there are, I, th- I think it's OrphanNet that has a statistic about um, 98% of the rare disease patient population being associated with 380 different conditions. You know, if you, if you think about that, that remaining 2% is spread across six, seven, eight, maybe nine, or even 10,000 condition areas, because there's only approved treatments for five or 600. With that in mind, if you're, if you're from a patient population that has 100 or 200 patients in it, uh, they, they are really being compelled to drive drug development further downstream in order to attract investment or uh, uh, partnership with, with, with Big Pharma. I think that trend is going to accelerate in part because of what's going on in the broader biotech market. And there's gonna be more of an emphasis away from early stage companies and early stage assets towards later stage ones and potentially towards bigger disease areas. So in many, in many cases, it's driven out of necessity, but there's been a lot of innovation in the area that uh, I think is promising and should help more of these companies or, or individuals to uh, be more successful. Mm-hmm. And so we, we talked about obviously this the well-known example of uh, the CF Foundation and Vertex. Uh, there's also been uh, you know one of the most successful examples uh, that you point out in the report is the SMA Foundation uh, and uh, their successful collaboration. Um, there's also Opus Genetics, uh, which kind of spun out of or was spun out by the same, scientists who uh, founded Spark Therapeutics, uh, which uh, got the uh, uh, first gene therapy in the United States, Luxturna, approved. Uh, but can, can you talk about some of the um, you know, best examples of the patient-led drug development trend and, and patient organizations increasing sophistication? Well, I think there's an increasing number of examples that are following different paths. So um, you have uh, examples like in, in Angelman, um, where, you know, you've got uh, FAST, you've got the development of genetics as a, as a distinct company. 
Um, there are other examples like Columbus Children's Foundation, where you know you, you're really focused on trying to drive a number of development programs forward that are patient-led. Um, and then you've got uh, things like the Institute for Life-Changing Medicine, which is uh, Jim Jim Wilson um, and and UPenn, and um, that that's a model that really is designed to. Uh, figure out how for some of these uh, orphan or ultra rare uh, condition areas, can we change the model to make it more realistic for those uh, therapies in those areas to actually make it to to the marketplace. So I think there's a variety of things going on now, both from a standpoint of, okay, you know, you you may have an option to look at drug repurposing, for example, um, or acquisition of IP from from companies that have been abandoned but might have hope in your area, all the way through to actual translational work in gene therapy and and other areas that might lead to um, to, to therapy. So there's a broader array of <clears throat> options available. Uh, our goal we're we're launching an initiative um, called Ready, the Rare Entrepreneurial Development and Incubation Initiative, which is really designed to help further upstream help organizations and and entrepreneurs and citizen scientists make good decisions about what path might make the most sense for them to provide mentoring and guidance to uh, get them in front of ultimately investors or or, um, partners that might be able to help move their uh, innovation forward. And and we're going to need a lot of that because I think, you know, increasingly the innovation is going to have to be driven at the patient level initially. Sure. And, and the report also, you know, talks about the uh, example of Tasha gene therapies, uh, which is this translational mechanism to advance therapies from lab to market. And yeah. kind of this anecdote where, you know, somebody came to basically, um, you know, a business development person and, you know, with a list of conditions, rare, di- rare diseases, and the, and, the, and the business development guy said, this isn't a patient organization. This is a company, you know, <laughs> let's start a company to, you know, platform to, as, as you put it, you know, industrialized patient-led discovery. So it's really become quite a phenomenon uh, these days. Uh, I wanted to transition over to regulatory. Uh, one, one of the points in the report is that the 2021 approval of Adjuhelm was the most consequential regulatory decision from the FDA for the rare diseases world. How concerned are you about any potential alterations to the FDA's application of the accelerated approval pathway? I think we're very concerned uh, if it, it appears that the that regulatory pathway is going to be constrained. Um, you, you mentioned the Orphan Drug Act. Uh, that really helped to create a business model uh, for rare disease drug development, and it it, it uh, opened up the opportunity for more accelerated uh, drug development and rare disease. You know, as we look out there, and and there has been a lot of discussion, political discussion around these accelerated pathways, um, perhaps as a result of of Adihelm. Um, but they're they're looking at it through the wrong end of the telescope, I think. Um, you know, rather than uh, focus on it as a problem that needs to be solved. I think they have to understand that there are uh, often exceptions in terms of the beneficial application of of something like an accelerated pathway. And really, what we ought to be focused on is providing a more consistent experience for 
companies that are in that accelerated pathway that will help to ensure that they can meet the regulatory guidelines. They have a clear sense of what they need to do uh, in order to meet those standards and um, can be more successful in that pathway. Because ultimately, the FDA, their their goal, I think, is to make sure that as many uh, drugs that can benefit patients are approved as possible, provided that they're safe and effective. Sure, sure. And, you know, excuse me, I think our listeners know what a polarizing decision, you know, the approval of Biogen's Alzheimer's drug Adjuhelm was last year, but they might not realize that 84% of all drugs approved under the FDA's accelerated assessment program between 2015 and 2020 had orphan designations, and 27% of orphan drugs that want approval during that time did so through the accelerated approval pathway. So it really has been an essential one for getting orphan drugs to market. Uh, and so one can understand, you know, why um, Global Genes is, is concerned about any you know, potential threats to that pathway. And, and Robert Califf, during his confirmation, did allow himself to, uh, we'll say, you know, go on record as saying he will clean up, you know, the accelerated approval uh, process. Not that he will end it, of course, but he's going to take a look at it. So uh, we'll, that's just one, one to keep our eyes on there uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, segueing over here to uh, funding for a moment, uh, you know, rare disease therapeutic developers raised a total of almost $23 billion, uh, we said, last uh, last year through public and private equity and debt financings in 21, uh, and they set a new record for venture, venture capital financing. Acquisitions of rare disease drug developers dominated the largest M&A deals of the year. What's driving these trends, and do you foresee anything slowing down the funding train? I think what's been driving uh, the greater interest in and investment in uh, rare disease drug development is that rare diseases are likely to be the proving ground for the most promising biotechnologies uh, that are out there right now. So if you think about uh, rare diseases, I think it's about 80 or 85% of rare diseases um, have a genetic basis. And so as you think about uh, and many of those are monogenetic. So when you think about uh, gene editing or gene therapy and, and some of these other promising regenerative medicine approaches, it's, it's only natural that you would look to rare disease and to some of these indication areas where um, ideally you can prove the approach and then apply it much more broadly uh, across other disease areas. And so I think that's that's been behind a lot of the interest. Um, I think there are other benefits to the focus on rare disease too, and that um, you may learn things about uh, drug delivery um, that are important. If you think about about almost half of rare diseases are neurological, for example, that's a huge challenge for uh, not just drug development but for uh, drug delivery. And uh, there may be innovations that emerge from rare disease that inform a number of other larger areas of neurological uh, health. So, I, you know, I think that that's, that's driven it. Do I foresee it slowing down? Um, I foresee it slowing down uh, in that the markets overall are, are shifting away from earlier stage drug development. I think there is the potential that some promising uh, gene therapies, for example, um, may not have the opportunity to advance um, simply because the markets are, are, are skittish. And 
uh, we're actually looking at the potential to, to create a fund that might um, help with some of those earlier stage um, assets so that we can get more of them to advance far enough where they can get the investment and support they need to, uh, to get approved and become accessible to patients. Okay. Uh, one final question, Craig, and I'll let you go. And it's around affordability. You know, as, as a growing number of uh, potentially curative therapies advance toward the market, the cost of treating a rare disease and questions of who will pay and how much will become an increasing point of contention. Are new business models getting us closer to making innovation sustainable? I, I believe they are, yes. I mean, I, I think that um, there's been some good work done by Every Life Foundation, for example, around what the burden of untreated rare disease is. Uh, so oftentimes we look at the cost of the treatment, but we ignore the cost of not being treated and the implications of that on, on health systems. So I think there is significant potential for some of these new transformative one-time therapies to actually reduce costs within the system if we can figure out a good way of uh, providing alternative payment models that will maybe spread the cost of, of those uh, treatments over time in the same way that the cost of untreated rare diseases is spread over time, often over a lifetime. Um, so I think there has been work that's been done. I think um, you know it's a, it's a big change within uh, health plans. It's a big change for, for uh, employers that often bear a lot of the burden of those, those costs. Um, but I, I think both on the business model, on the drug development model side and on the business model side, there's innovation that's likely to converge that will uh, help that innovation to be more sustainable over time. Okay, Craig, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You got it. And happy uh, World Rare Disease Day. Thank you. Same to you.